Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. There is a story for everyone here because every story matters. Welcome everyone to the Storybooks. This is the place to be if you are a lover of stories learning new and interesting things, and if you want to grow abundantly. My name is Jay Phantom, and I believe it's my purpose to help you realize your worth and become the greatest and best version of you possible. I am grateful that you're here today. Now let's journey into the story box together and hear more about whose story will be unboxed today. Well, everyone, welcome back to a very exciting episode of the Storybox podcast. Today, my friends, I'm delighted to welcome someone who many of you may recognize if you're Australian or even if you are American, you may recognize the name because he's a very prominent figure and I have the pleasure and honor of getting to unbox a little bit about his story today. Uh, His name is John Anderson or the Honorable John Anderson. Now, John, instead of me gushing about all the incredible things you've done not only for the country of Australia, but for so many people, uh, I thought it would, would be best if I spin the introduction on you and ask you personally, who are you? What have you done? And what do you do today? So, John, please take it away. Well, the broad, the broad brush is that uh, I'm a farmer from northwest New South Wales, uh, fifth generation on my father's side, sixth on my mother's. So we've been around since the 1820s. Uh, I had... Uh, I didn't go looking for a parliamentary career, but I had 19 years in the federal parliament after I was talked into running by a retiring member. Uh, little did I know that that journey would take me to the leadership of the National Party and to the Deputy Prime Ministership, uh, but it did. Uh, I left parliament voluntarily. I wasn't actually voted out. I just decided I'd had enough in 2007, especially after 10 years of cabinet life, which is much more wearing than most people might ever begin to understand uh, and decided I'd go quietly farming again. We had four children at that stage. They were sort of mostly in their high school years uh, and I wanted time with them and I thought, well, a quiet life, just being a farmer again, would be good. Then what was known as the Great Financial Crisis came along, the economic meltdown of 2008 9 And I became convinced for what it was worth that the things I'd experienced in government, trying to be part of a team that built a strong economy, because a strong economy is about good outcomes for people. It's job opportunities. It's ability to afford a house. It's to do all those good things. Um, And I could see that it was all falling away, that leaders were not leading. And the other side of the coin was that people were not prepared to make any sacrifices to pick up the mess and fix it all. So I got involved again started writing a few pieces, and then we hit upon the idea of seeing whether there was any mileage in running a video podcast series. So we launched that about five and a half years ago. Funnily enough, we had several in the bank, so to speak, of these sorts of conversations before we launched, but we launched with one with Jordan Peterson because what he said to me, I hardly knew him at the time. I know him much better now, but what he had to say was so interesting. Uh, We launched with it. And that just put us on the map, simple as that. And we found that young people especially loved it, especially young men who feel they're being told by their culture that their masculinity is toxic. So that's a, that's a very broad brush approach. That's, that's about all it is. Uh, I am driven by personally by a view that Christianity is true uh, and that it works 
uh, and that we are obliged to do all that we can to love our neighbours. So imperfectly, I have tried hard to make a contribution and not to make it about me. You're a very humble man, John, and I'm grateful to have you here on the Storybox podcast today. So thank you so much for making the time. There's a lot that I do want to cover with you today in such a short space of time, <laughs> believe it or not. So maybe there may be room for a, a second conversation down the line. You, you may never know, but uh, I would greatly appreciate if we could touch on, firstly, this quote that I found on your website that I would love for you to uh, talk about what it actually means to you. So I'm going to read it out. It's from John Stuart Mill. Uh, he who knows only his own side of the case knows little of that. His reasons may be good and no one may have been able to refute them. But if he is equally unable to refute the reasons of the opposite side, if he does not so much as know what they are, he he has no ground for for preferring either option. Nor is it enough that he should hear the opinions of adversaries from his own teachers presented as they state them and accompanied by what they offer as refutations. He must be able to hear them from persons who actually believe them. He must know them in their plausible and pervasive form. What does that mean to you, John? Uh, maybe a really simple way of putting it would be the old Irish saying, don't judge a man until you've walked a mile in his shoes. That's a really simple encapsulation of the idea. Uh, it means that you really should try and understand why somebody who has a very different view to you has that view and what they're thinking behind it is. Um, in fact, I picked the quote up. Uh, I was aware of it, but I picked it up from um, a man called Jonathan Haidt, and I've talked to him a couple mm. of times. He wrote books like... Um, uh, the Righteous Mind and the Coddling of the American Mind. And he was a university lecturer at, uh, at, at the New York, in New York. And he became aware that his students very often passionately argue, believed in something and would argue it to the death and belittle people who had a different view. But the minute you asked them some hard questions, it fell apart because they didn't know why they really believed what they believed. And I picked it up because of what I see as the extraordinary reluctance of people to engage in a debate and try and understand what the other side's saying. And, you know, I think we probably all know the situation now where you'll be with a group of people around a dinner table and somebody will talk up, introduce something. I mean, it's not hard to think of an example, uh, climate change or even now the voice where divisions are so deep, so polarised, that nobody can understand where the other person's coming from. So if you take the voice, it may surprise some of your listeners, but I genuinely understand why people want to find a better way. I didn't decide that I was against it, likely. I have tried to understand because I represented a lot of Aboriginal people what both sides of the case are, and I would be the first to say there are very serious problems but I have come to the conclusion that this is the wrong solution. It's a tops down, in fact, uh, when what is actually needed is a bottoms up uh, approach, what might be called in Old Testament terms the model of subsidiarity, mm. where you start at the base, your own local community, your own local family, with the deep issues of security, of love, of commitment to others as the only building block for functioning lives, functioning families and communities upon which you can build a nation. It's not the other way around. Why do you think that all of these so-called viewpoints or opinions that are being formulated in today's culture, why do you think they don't really stand when it comes down to a debate? Why do you think that our viewpoints from a Christian perspective, why do you think that they are foundational and they actually hold up whereas these other viewpoints don't? It's a very good question. Uh, there's something in the idea of the zeitgeist. The zeitgeist, is it's a German term. It means the spirit of the age. 
Mm. Uh, and the spirit of the age has turned profoundly anti-Christian. Uh, there's no two ways about that. We need to recognise it. And so it's almost as though people go looking for reasons to say why Christianity is wrong. And the most distressing aspect of it in many ways is that there's such an incredibly superficial understanding of what Christianity is and why it's been the building block for Western, uh, uh, I'll say it, civilization. But people will attack even the idea that it's a civilization. They'll say, no, it's not. No, we're the most evil people that have ever walked the surface of the earth. I mean, to me, the obvious answer to that is, well, why on earth do people want to come to our countries, which are so much freer and more prosperous, where people live longer and have much more opportunity in life, uh, and leave other countries which are built on other systems and other beliefs behind? But no, uh, we, we want to denigrate our own model. And the second point that I would make is that two of the greatest thinkers of the 20th century foresaw all this 100 years or so ago one was G.K. Chesterton, mm. and he said, when we stop believing in God, far from believing in nothing, we will believe in anything. Uh, and the other one was uh, uh, Churchill. Now, of course, we want to denigrate Churchill now. Young people say, oh, you know, he was an imperialist, colonialist, racist, racist whatever. Yep. None of us would be here if he hadn't taken on one of the most evil men the world has ever seen, Adolf Hitler. As somebody said in England, if you think, Churchill was a racist. Have a look at the bloke he beat. Mm. He killed 12 million of his own people and created a war that killed 60 million. And he'd have won that evil man if it hadn't been for Churchill. Well, Churchill said that if you reject your history and don't tell your young people the story of its heroes and its beliefs, you leave them open to a directionless approach to life without meaning and purpose and open, here's a really interesting point, to Karl Marx's dictum that of people that don't know their history, that don't know their foundations, are easily persuaded. Mm. And I, to be, I hope I don't offend too many people here, but I think one of the marks of today is how easily persuaded people are. I think, I mean, I'm now in my mid-60s. I look back over my life and I look at the accelerating pace. I mean, it's one idea. No, 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 we drop that one and then we go after another one. And, oh, the world will be saved if we go down this road. And all the world's evils are because now white people and only white people are racist. And, you know, and then tomorrow it'll be another great thing to condemn ourselves over. We rush from belief to belief to belief, most of which are very easily unpacked because we've created a terrible void. There have been many civilizations down through the age when they've stopped believing in themselves they rapidly run down. And, and I know that sounds very profound, but that's the danger we're now facing. You know, we really are. We're eating ourselves out from within. We don't trust one another. We don't trust the, our institutions. We think they're all bad, but worse than that, we no longer celebrate the underlying ethos and ideas and values that we were set up on. In fact, we're very suspicious of them. Well, when you throw out Christianity, you throw out the bedrock of a civilised society, which is the idea is that everyone matters. Whether you agree or not is irrelevant. Every individual has worth and dignity. Even the person who most detests you and gives you the hardest time and that you find the hardest to love, uh, you know, in, in the sight of an almighty, that person has value and is, it, it, the objective is to try and reach them, not reject them. I agree with everything you just said because i'm 26 and i'm starting to notice the very very fast decline of our youth and all these toxic ideas that are seeping through into their brains and it would seem like they not only are being taught to be lazy to have this victimhood kind of mentality about the world and to just blame literally everybody and everything and take no personal responsibility, which is a biblical term. And now we've got a soft society, soft generation, and our so-called leaders in positions of power have no real sense of good conviction, I've noticed, to lead them in a positive and a good kind of direction. They just allow them and they, what's the word? They uh, affirm, they affirm the crazy, they affirm these radical ideas. I saw in America they had the 4th of July 
and you had these people that were claiming that we shouldn't celebrate the independence of America and they were trying to burn the American flag and saying that if the Americans have a American flag in their uh, windowsill or even if they display it, they're somehow considered to be a racist. But if they fly the pride flag, let's say, then that is somehow going to make them feel safe. That is better for America. And I'm just looking at that going, John, you're right, totally. You remove Christianity, which I believe America was founded upon. You remove that and you watch society just degrade very, very quickly. And it's sad to see. One of the um, one of the points I, I would make in response is to uh, I'll illustrate it this way. I gave a talk not very long ago, actually, in, in Queensland. And there was a very nice lady of my age who, who's I know reasonably well. She said, John, you sound like you're down on young people. I think they're doing very well. I think they're terrific. Now, of course, that is true of many young people, and I don't want to sound down on them, but we need to come to grips with a, with a reality. We know from the statistics that they are the most anxious young people we've been able to record. They're depressed. Um, medication levels are incredibly high, yeah. and self-harm is very high. We also know from the research that they feel alienated from their culture and they um, feel uh, that um, it, it, patriotism is a bad thing. Well, if you're not able to feel proud of your culture and feel that it's worth defending, that's a pretty serious state of affairs. It really is. And, of course, you know, the, here's, the, here's the, the great rub. America was built on the idea of freedom. That's what they've talked about most. Mm. And in many ways, they have, I mean, they're, 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 they have a terrible problem with, with the past in terms of slavery. Uh, there's no doubt about that. And yet, as a black American said to me not long ago, the best place to be a black in the world today is in America. Mm. And I thought, what an extraordinary thing to say. And he said, you know, two-thirds of African Americans now are middle-class Americans with a good life expectancy with good jobs and good opportunities. One third, that means, could be doing better. But two thirds is a lot better than it was in the 1960s and 1970s. It's about double. That's point one that he was making, not me. He was a black American. Mm. And the second point that he, he made, I think, was you know really very relevant, that there is no other country in America uh, where uh, there isn't a greater level of disadvantage, and that actually turns out to be true, I'm afraid. It's a bit like slavery. Everyone actually forgets that every empire down through the ages has participated in this great evil, every empire, including, for example, the Zulus, mm. the Zulu empire in Africa. Uh, and, in fact, the whole African slave trade was built on Africans enslaving others, going into the inland, rounding up uh, all the fit and able-bodied people, killing the infirm and the aged and the babies mm. and taking the rest off to the coast and trading them. Most did not go to the English and American trade. They went to the Middle East where very few of them have survived. There are no descendants because all the men were castrated, which has always not only seemed horrific to me but given that it was such a ghoulish and horrible operation that so many died, you'd wonder why he'd castrate your slave and then find that he died. Yeah. Um, yeah. And only one empire voluntarily ended it. it was the British Empire. And you can say, yes, for 200 years the British Empire kept slaves. That is abhorrent. It is abhorrent. But it's the only empire down through the ages that has got rid of slavery and then used its might to stop other countries. They put the Royal Navy out on the seas and many, many white English sailors died trying to preserve the freedoms of black people who'd been enslaved by other cultures. So you see, the story is much more mixed, much more nuanced than this sort of angry, we are all terrible, we have only, we should grovelingly apologise for everything. There's a story of commitment to human freedoms and so forth that has come out of remarkable leadership. And what an inconvenience. 
What an inconvenience it is that it turns out that the anti-slavery movement was led by William Wilberforce, who was a very privileged white male Christian, but he saw that there was no grounds for distinguishing all people, regardless of the colour of their skin, were to be, in the phrase of the day, recognised as as men and brothers. Um, And um, that was radical at the time. But you see, that's not taught anymore. We're only taught the negative side, and it's always aimed at our own culture. It is true that America had to engage in an appalling civil war, a truly terrible event to end slavery. But again, to tell the whole story, you have to recognise that they cared enough to tear themselves apart, resolving the issue, and thankfully resolved it the right way. I don't make light of it, but I just say, got to remember two sides. You've got to remember there have been very good and noble people in our own culture who have sought better ways and built societies. Uh, go back to my starting point in this rather long-winded answer. But other people want to come to. Why do they want to come to? Because we're relatively free. You live a reasonable time. You have opportunities. All of those things. Which is a fundamental aspect of a capitalist kind of society, a democratic society, as it were. Properly managed, properly managed. A lot of people think uh, when they think what's democracy, they think of Abraham Lincoln, government of the people, by the people, for the people. He was quoting a clergyman that Mm. he heard when he was in church just a few weeks before. So as the value of going to church, you sometimes hear great and powerful and wonderful ideas because that's what that is. But the clergyman was quoting a theologian from Oxford in the 13th or 14th century called John Wycliffe. There's still a Wycliffe Hall today in Oxford. And he was saying, this is this idea of subsidiarity again. A peaceful, proper, functioning society starts with you and me governing our own lives sensibly, being decent citizens, doing what we ought to do, accepting our responsibilities, looking after those around us to the best of our ability, pulling together building communities at work, and then as a sort of an apex model. And, and and the Old Testament model was you'd have a group of 10 people or so and they would have a judge who'd try and resolve any little issues and you wouldn't push it further up the train and demand that somebody else be distracted from it unless it was absolutely necessary. Function, you know, rule yourself, know yourself, rule yourself, behave responsibly and, and love and cherish and honour those around you and then you can start to build a stronger society. But, you see, because so few people now, I'll be blunt about this, are accepting their responsibilities, they either can't because they're hurt and damaged or they won't because they're irresponsible and selfish or a combination of both. And so we are eating ourselves out from within and now we demand more and more that government solve every problem for us. Government can't provide the love, the nurture, the security, the relationship that... All of us need so deeply uh, if we're to find fulfilment and purpose in life. Government can't do that. I was listening to, I don't know if you know, uh, I believe his name is Richard Wolf, who talks about Karl Marx and how I, he was talking with uh, Lex Friedman. It was over two hours something conversation. It took me a little bit to actually get through it all, but fundamentally the the last part of it, he was talking about how, in his viewpoint, capitalism and democracy doesn't seem to necessarily work, whereas he was trying to argue that, and he's taught this in universities and, and the lectures and so forth, saying that Karl Marx's system has worked in his viewpoint and can work if we manage it properly. And I want to ask you, what are the dangers of that, firstly? What are the dangers of having... Karl Marx's system in a, in place of capitalism, in place of free trade and free society, and you mentioned if it's managed well. I guess the second question is: Do you think that capitalism and democracy is being managed well today with those that we have in positions of power? Goodness. Well, I think the first thing I'd say is the fact that any university or academic could still teach after the lessons of the history of the last couple of hundred years that Marxism is a good way to order your government and your economy. It just proves that um, that, that, that intelligence and knowledge are unacquainted with wisdom. No. Good point. You know, <laughs> it's a common problem, I'm afraid. 
you know, the lessons. I mean, communism has killed more people than Nazism. Yeah. I mean, it's been unbelievably oppressive and cruel. Just ask the people of Hong Kong how they're enjoying their new lifestyle. Um, the second point that I would make, that is that uh, whilst democratic capitalism is not perfect and it's particularly bad, going back to what I said earlier, it starts to unravel when people won't govern themselves and live responsibly themselves, and when and in capitalism, when it becomes crony capitalism, mm-hmm. I can understand why people react against it. But real capitalism, the idea that subject to a set of fair rules, if you work hard, you get ahead. If you save, you get ahead. If you invent something clever, it's your property and you can profit it by selling it. So if I make two sweaters because I'm a very clever farmer and I've learned how to grow a bit more wool than I need, I make a second sweater and I sell it to you because um, uh, you're a brilliant communicator and I want you to sell a message for me or whatever. Uh, And we do an exchange. We've both profited, not just one side. You want what I've got. I want what you've got. We're freely available to exchange. Then with the capital that I've made from selling the second sweater, I go and make three or four extra ones next year. Then the price comes down and everybody has cheaper, better sweaters. That's the way it's worked. That's what's lifted people out of poverty. Um, When it turns into crony capitalism, which is what we saw during the great financial crisis, you know, no one at Lehman Brothers, Lehman Brothers in America, that's what triggered the whole thing. It wasn't just them. The system turned out to be loaded with um, irresponsible debt and we solved the debt crisis with debt. But no one went to jail because although they'd acted, in my my view, in ways that were not wise and were not decent and not responsible, they hadn't broken the law. And you can say, oh, well, you tighten up the law even more. But this is the whole problem I'm driving at here, is when people don't do the right thing voluntarily, you end up having to police it and then freedoms are gradually evolved. Uh, worn down. Freedom only carries on while people accept the responsibility to treat it not as license, but as the opportunity to do the right and the good thing uh, and and what have you. But here's the final rub, and this is why I think anybody who argues that communism is wrong is a good way to go. Uh, It can never work because its central theory is so deeply flawed. Let's spell it out. It's that Everyone owes their first loyalty to the party. Yep. Now, I'm not going to give my first loyalties to any political party. There is no way that I can, in my heart of hearts, give my loyalty to a political, a letter political party. Mm. But my first loyalties are to my wife and to my children and to my community and to truth and honour and beauty uh, and, and the proper treatment of other human beings. It is not to a party. And we will never to forget the dictum uh, of um, uh, Lord John uh, Acton, uh, who said that power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely. That's the problem with the party. Once you give your loyalties to a human-based political organisation, that power will go to its head and they will want more and more and more of it. And that's been the story of communism until freedom is completely snuffed out. What, so, are you, what are your thoughts on? It's abounding everywhere. I could walk down the alleys of Sydney University waving a Marxist banner and probably get a few claps and a fair yeah. bit of disinterest. If I walked down with a Nazi flag, I'd be virtually thrown in jail. I'd be censored and cancelled forever. They're both evil. But communism has actually cost many more lives than Nazism. So... People are nuts, so they want to go on defending the indefensible. That's all I can say. Nuts. I was in university, I think it was 2019, early 2020, before the whole COVID pandemic occurred. It was at Macquarie University, and we're doing several different lectures. One of them was a critical thinking course, which was, again, not a critical thinking lecture. Sadly, they were telling kids what to think and not how to think as I came to discover for myself. But before the lecture would begin, they have like five or 10 minutes of interlusion and they had like all these other students come in and share certain certain things were going on uh, around the university. And, and several times, I couldn't believe this. And at the time, I didn't necessarily know too much about who Karl Marx was. I knew about communism, but not to a large extent like I do now. But he had these young 
young kids come in with Karl Marx flags and trying to say that we're celebrating Karl Marx on this day. We are having an event. We want everyone in this room to attend. And I'm going, I don't know too much about Karl Marx, but I ain't going to that because I know enough to know that he was an evil man and his ideologies are not never going to work in society. So why in the world are you young-minded individuals leading all these other young-minded individuals astray? Like you, you guys need some serious help <laughs> by the looks of things. But yeah, I wasn't courageous enough to stand up or or. or oh, it's very hard. Oh, it's, it's very hard because they're uh, so passionate and so dismissive of any alternative view. Let me go to another issue for young people, though, with communism. This is the age where we've rejected Christianity by and large. So the greatest virtue is self-autonomy. I will find myself with, from within, and my identity will be whoever I feel I am, without reference to the family, often the family I was born into, uh, you know, the society I'm part of, my gender, what have you. I will be who I feel I am, the idea of radical autonomy. And yet many of those people are attracted to the sort of thinking that you were talking about, left thinking. Left thinking is collectivism. There's no room for autonomy. There's no room for I am who I feel I am in a communist state. No, no, your loyalty will be to the state and the state will determine how you behave and they will survey you. That's the extraordinary thing. Every communist state we've had, people have been surveyed. You know, neighbour, encouraged to report on neighbour. Children, encouraged to report on parents who might be disloyal to the party. In mm -hmm. China today, we're told, you know, there's a surveillance camera, and many of them now with um, uh, uh, facial recognition and body recognition. They can recognise you from the way you walk mm -hmm. recognition to monitor what you're doing and to determine whether you're a good citizen or not. That is not freedom. That is not a system that will allow young people to celebrate the thing that they think uh, or they've been told is important, self-autonomy. And, and by the way, just while I'm on it, you'll never find yourself look, by looking within. And I haven't met too many people who are up to the task of being their own God and their own saviour. doesn't work like that. We're not up to it. But you can look at people in history that thought that, look at what happened to them. And look at the damage they did to others. Yeah. So this whole idea of worship of self, I mean, the Bible's full of people that worshipped themselves or worshipped another god of some description that didn't worship the god, the only god, what happened? <laughs> it wasn't a good outcome for them or other people. It just led so many people astray. And unfortunately, going back to what we said earlier, with the removal of Christ and these fundamental or foundational ideas, more and more people are being led astray than ever before. They're being delusioned, they're more inclined to go along with this sort of hive mind approach, which is just fascinating to me. Like they want this sort of autonomy, but they don't get it with their ideas that they're working so hard to, to achieve. Like it, it doesn't make any sense to me. And I'm going, how do we wake these people up? How do we wake these young people to like the truth? Why do they not see the truth as being the truth anymore because there's only the truth. There's not a person's individual version of the truth or it's just opinion. But how do we get them to see the truth for what it really is nowadays? Well, I'm told that the, uh, the, 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 the decline in church membership has actually come to an end amongst young people. It's stabilised and, if anything, picking up a little. Hmm. Uh, and I think that's because actually our society in, you know, that's a very vague term, but the zeitgeist, if you like, the elites who are telling us what to think, yeah. I think they've overplayed their hand. I think there's been serious overreach and people, younger people, good on them. Uh, I think there are substantial numbers of them that are really starting to look deep and search for something better. And maybe that's being driven by the unhappiness. We know about the unhappiness. We know. It's very interesting. I was talking to a scientist, an academic, not long ago about stress amongst young people. And he said, and he, he's a climate, uh, uh, you know, a very strong on, on climate emissions. Good on him. He's a scientist. He's worried about it. That's uh, absolutely in his purview. But he said to me, that's because young people don't think we're doing enough about climate. I went and talked to uh, uh, Mark McCrindle, 
Mm. Uh, who uh, is is a brilliant researcher in this area. And I said, what is worrying young people, these statistics? And is it climate change and the belief that we haven't done enough about it? He said, that is one of many factors that are lying heavily on their minds. Many. We've convinced them that the earth is coming to an end. By the way, that is not what the scientists say. They say, we've got challenges. But the earth's not coming to an end. Um, uh, and, but um, more importantly, what he was saying is that there's a whole plethora of issues that are really challenging young people and are causing them to be worried. You know, will I ever get a job that pays well enough for me to branch out on my own and have my own home, leave home? We know extraordinary numbers of young people who are still living at home long past the age when that would be their preference. And I keep hearing stories in more recent times, over the last 12 months, when rents have gone through the roof, housing prices have continued to rise at the same time as interest rates have gone up, where young people, you know, in the sort of even over 30 are, are, are saying, hey, mum and dad, can I, can I come home so that I can put some money aside because the rent is simply beating me and I can't afford a house? Mm. So there are many things worrying young people. And I think traditionally we might have said, okay, well, the response is to gear up for leadership, engage in the issues, they matter, get involved in public life. But the disincentives now for people to get involved in public life and the ease with which you can just be cynical and say, ah, oh, it's hopeless, all the politicians, they're useless and what have you. Well, no, the answer is to say get involved. But as Jordan Peterson says, before you get involved, Go back to your bedroom, so to speak, and actually work out what is true and what is not true. Don't go and try and be a champion out there just wanting to tear everything down as though that's going to make everything better because it won't. That's what I had to do. I mean, <laughs> I, had to, I had to honestly because I didn't know too much about, I knew a bit, but not as much as what I do now. Is like because I started listening to men like yourself, Jordan Peterson, and so many others that I started to expand my understanding and then also going back to the Bible and trying to piece everything together because I was just told a lot of things growing up. I didn't understand everything as it were to a greater extent. And so it was it was good for me to go back, ask myself all these questions, and then listen to the other side Otherwise, I'll just be in this echo chamber for the rest of my life. If I only went with people that I agree with and believe with, I had so many conversations with people on the right, the left, and I came to the understanding of like, I know that this is true because not only Christ said it's true, but I understand it to be so because there's evidence and it makes a lot more sense. And from a scientific standpoint, Humans love to think in in straight lines, things that make sense. And I was like, this other stuff doesn't make any sense at all. And as a young man, I, I needed to have a level of conviction and to go with another level of courage as well, as it were, and say, I need to stand by these things. And I, I don't need to be like the wind being moved as, as if like the chaff, right? Like I need to be foundational in that. And so that's what I had to do. And it took a, a little bit of time, but I'm grateful that I did it. And, you know, I, I think a lot of more young people, like you said, they're starting to wake up, but there's also a lot of fears that do happen nowadays, which are worrisome. I understand that wholeheartedly. And that's one of the main reasons why I encourage people to listen to men like yourself and Jordan Peterson, because we need that kind of information to be spread far and wide um yeah i went on a little bit of a tangent there <laughs> no i think you raise a really important point uh, the thing that i would say to young people out of love is you really have a choice you'd be tossed around on like a cork on the ocean you know just 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 floating in a in, in mountainous seas without any sense of purpose and direction and I think that's a very depressing place to be. Yeah. And I don't think it's what it's meant to be. There are better ways. I, I think one of the most terrible things that some Christians can do is to say, you know, 
come and believe and life will be straightforward and rosy and you'll be prosperous and you'll know peace. It isn't as simple as that. Uh, I think that life is tough. I think Jordan Peterson's right on that. Mm. When it becomes unbearable, as if you've got no purpose, no direction, no sense of, 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 of who you really are, uh, you make it much worse then by saying I can be my own God. As I said, we're not up to that task. We just aren't. We're flawed, every single one of us. My goodness, when I really look at myself and think, could I be God over me, let alone over anybody else? What an appalling thought. No, I can't. I'm too flawed. I'm not strong enough. I'm not big enough. You know, I want a God who is absolutely reliable and absolutely trustworthy and will one day bring things to their rightful place because that, to me, is the attraction of the gospel. Justice will be done, love will be exercised, uh, and there will be hope uh, eternal uh, for those who place their faith in Jesus Christ. That's the gospel message. Uh, and and I, I think I'm making a plea is don't waste half your life being tossed around thinking you're going to find a better resolution around the corner. I'm old enough to have lived and seen how when you're in your 20s, you're idealistic and you think everything will come right if you work hard, if you do this, if you follow that stream, if you believe in so-and-so. By the time you're in your 40s or your 50s, you realise that it's not actually like that. Even if you've climbed to the top of your career or you've been an influential politician or you've you know, been a great guru on university, it doesn't satisfy the God-shaped void in your heart. You're still looking for meaning, for purpose. Who am I really? Do I have any significance? Will I ever really know joy? Will I ever really know peace? And for me, that is why, uh, in the words of um, uh, one of the one of the prayers I heard recently, uh, the gospel so perfectly meets our human needs. So perfectly meets our human needs. Well, that's what I think we need to be seeking out, something that perfectly meets our human needs. Every one of us, a mixture of good and bad. Uh, you know, the uh, the old Blaise Pascal idea that, uh, that human beings are both the glory of the universe and the scum of the universe, and each of us are capable of behaving appallingly and out of terrible motivation. Every one of us bears the mark of the Almighty, so which one? The one that you concentrate on most will be the one that will start to pull ahead, by the way. The thing that you focus on most, you end up with more of. I sort of want to end this conversation because I know I've got to let you go soon, John. On this question, do you believe that people are inherently good? Um that's a very good question. I asked a school group that many years ago in Queensland. It was very interesting. It got a very lively debate going. Um, uh, I actually, no, I don't. Uh, here's what I really believe. I believe we were made to be in relationship and to be good, but given a choice as to whether we stayed in that place. And, you know, whether it's poetry or whatever, the powerful story of Genesis and poetry often reflects the great truths we need to understand is that given free will, we actually chose to try and do it our way uh, and destroyed that model of being perfectly equipped for relationship and for good works and good deeds. However, the news is that we can be restored so that we can be what we ought to be. So I think we're all a mixture of good and bad, and I don't believe that we're inherently good. I think if we're inherently good, we would inherently choose to worship the almighty and the creator and sustainer of all and to love our neighbours. And I don't see too much evidence of us willingly doing that. Though, here's the rub. Or one of the things I've been able to do is to travel around the world to some of the more interesting places. And I have very deliberately tried to go to some of the less fortunate places where, by the way, I'll notice that you often find a level of joy and contentment and happiness that you don't find in the West. The proof that you know, being materially prosperous and having long lives and good health care and good education systems doesn't contain in itself the key to contentment and happiness. Uh, but the point that I would make is that I have met many human beings who have gone a lot further down the road towards being who they ought to be uh, uh, around the world and uh, they're, they're, they are 
often they are people of deep and profound faith who have uh, a deep appreciation and a deep humility, I suppose you'd say, before the Almighty and a deep and reverent commitment to the people around them and in, in a spirit of sacrifice. I'll, I'll tell you a little very briefly a story. Um, I met a young Indonesian man who was training for the ministry. He was about 27 or 28. I think that's about your age. Uh, yeah, all my, I'm 27 in August. Well, that was his age. And he just got married. Uh, and I think he was starting a family. And I knew that his place in his tertiary education institution was being paid for by an Australian. And I said, what would you like when I go home? Your sponsor to know. And he said, I'd like my sponsor to know that I grew up in a village where as a tiny little boy, just able to walk, I watched from behind the bushes hiding while some activist violent men shredded my entire family with machetes, all of them, my mother, my father, my siblings, they were cut to pieces. And I was so traumatised, it took me years to learn how to forgive. The order was important, forgive, and even longer to learn how to love again. But he said, I now have, with the help of a lot of others and many years, and I'm free of the demons of that terrible, terrible childhood, and I'm going back to the very community where I saw my family butchered before my eyes with my wife, and we are going to be Christian ministers in that community. And I thought, well, that's love of your fellow man. That's sacrifice. That's courage. But he was driven by this very deep sense of love and commitment, and that's what he wanted to do. And I thought, well, you know, we often look for others to solve our problems, but he's faced up to them. He's gone out there. He's worked these things through, and that's where he's landed. It's already seven or eight years ago since that happened. I hope he's back there, and I hope he's safe, but he was prepared to go back knowing that perhaps the same thing might happen again. Would it be that we were actually selfless, not selfish? And would it be that we actually followed things that were good and right in today's day and age? Because I I foresee it, if we did, things would be a lot better and things would sort of make a lot more sense than what they do nowadays. <laughs> um, it's an extraordinary thing, you know, when you stop and think about people who have adopted a service of others mentality. Mm. And we think last year, that it's estimated that 4 billion people, stop and think about that, 4 billion people around the world, I don't know how they work these things out, but that's what they say, uh, tuned in to watch the memorial service for an old white lady in a middle-ranking country called England uh, after she had died. That is an extraordinary thing. Why? Why? What was different about her? Well, she was a person who had demonstrated unbelievable commitment to the service of others. That's what stood out about Queen Elizabeth II's life. Now, she, of course, was a believer. And it's interesting that sometimes some people that I think should have known better would criticise her for her beliefs. She made them very plain. She lived by it. But people saw it. That's why they tapped in. Some people might say, oh, I was just the pageantry and the English do ceremony so well. There's a little bit of truth in that. But overwhelmingly, most people wouldn't have had any interest in that. They were recognising a human being who had actually found truth and lived by it and cared about others. And I think that was a very powerful moment that should stop us in our tracks and say, is there a better way? Because I believe there is a better way. Amen to that. <laughs> Amen to that, John. You are someone that I follow, and I hope to be a good, just a little bit of good a man as you are in my life. Because I've seen everything that you've done, from the public eye to even say the um, YouTube videos, the interviews, and even having the privilege of actually unboxing a little bit of who you are today has been a real honor and it just makes me even more resolved in my beliefs and in my, yeah, in, in my 
wanting to be of a more selfless, not selfish in what I do. So I, I appreciate you enormously and would love to have another conversation with you at another time. But thank you so much for your time today and for joining me on the Storybox podcast. Well, I think you've been far too generous. You, 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 I, I haven't revealed enough of myself or you wouldn't say all of those kind things. But uh, the one thing I can say is that I've learned over the years to be genuinely committed to arguing for a better world and trying to reflect that in my own life. And I think the thing I'd say to you as a young man that I've learned from watching Jordan Peterson is that so many young men just don't feel appreciated or encouraged. Uh, and I would want to say I appreciate you. I want to encourage you. And likewise to your listeners, not to say I don't want to encourage young ladies at all, except to say that in many ways I think, now I could be wrong on this. I'm quite open to admit I might be wrong. I think a lot of young women get a bit more encouragement than young men because we've had an age when everybody's wanted to focus on getting girls to do better, and they have been. Now I've trapped myself because I think the truth is that far too many of our young people just feel unappreciated and uncertain about whether they're valued. Well, I, I think any culture that says young people don't matter and they're not their future has lost its way completely. So young people, if you're listening, you matter. You're highly significant. And I just plead with you, go looking for hope and security in the right places, not the wrong places. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.